gospel-centered relationships. What is the one definitive mark of those who have been saved? Growing up, I heard lots of answers to that question. At one church I visited, they said that if you were really saved, you would show it by A, changing your language, B, the way you dressed. If you were a boy, you would took out your earrings, cut your hair short, and wore pleated khakis. C, a sudden and intense hatred for beer, cigarettes, and Disney. And D, a preference for music with little to no drum beat. Most of that is ridiculous, but the gospel does bring an unmistakable change in your life. The third part of the gospel prayer is, As you have been to me, so I will be to others. It's impossible to really experience the grace of the gospel and not be transformed into a person of kindness, generosity, and love. When we experience the generosity of the gospel, we will naturally extend that generosity to others. We become people with a generous spirit, and that affects how we treat others and what we do with our money, time, and talents. Grace and Victor Hugo One of my all-time favorite movie scenes is the opening sequence in the 1998 movie rendition of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Liam Neeson plays the part of Jean Valjean, a bitter criminal who has just been paroled from a hard labor camp in France. He stumbles alone late one night to the home of a priest, who invites him in and offers him food and shelter for the evening. That night, Valjean steals all the silverware in the priest's home. The priest, hearing some commotion in the house, gets up to investigate. Valjean punches him in the face and knocks him out. He then leaves with the stolen silver. Early the next morning, the police drag Valjean back to the home of the priest. The guard mockingly says to the priest, He told us you gave him this silver. Being a paroled prisoner, all the priest has to do is confirm that Valjean stole the silverware and Valjean will go back to prison for life. The priest, his face still bruised and bloodied from the night before, looks at Valjean and says, Why, yes, yes, I did. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. Then he adds unexpectedly, Because you forgot the candlesticks. Why did you forget the candlesticks? They are worth almost 2,000 francs. The guard immediately orders Valjean to be released. Valjean, meanwhile, is dumbfounded at the turn of events. The priest knew he stole the silver, and Valjean knew the priest knew. And yet the priest not only vouched for the convict, he shoved additional wealth into his sack. An explanation, the priest says quietly to Valjean, And now, don't you forget it. Don't you ever forget it. You've promised to become a new man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Les Miserables is the story of how Valjean becomes the new man the priest declared he would become. The mercy of the priest transforms Valjean from a hardened criminal into a patient, kind, generous man who cares for the poor and the orphan. A recipient of great mercy... He becomes a giver of great mercy. This, of course, is not the full gospel. It takes more than an act of mercy to change our hearts. The Spirit of God has to open our eyes to the mercy and beauty of God in Christ and give us a desire for it. But there is truth in Hugo's central point. Mercy begets mercy. 
Hugo had a wealth of material to draw from in the Gospels when he crafted his tale. In Matthew 18, 23-25, for example, Jesus told the story of one man who owed another man an extraordinary amount of money, 10,000 talents to be specific. That's a lot of money. Think Congressional Stimulus Package. The day came when the debt was due and the man was called into account. The man couldn't pay and consequently was sentenced to debtor's prison. There he would labor together with his family until the debt was paid off, even if it meant subsequent generations remained imprisoned. The man, hopeless, threw himself on the ground and began to plead for mercy. More time to pay off the debt. Everyone watching this pathetic scene began to feel uncomfortable, because loan officers don't become successful by showing mercy. They're not called loan bunnies or loan puppies, they're called loan sharks. If you don't pay someone named Bruno, uh, shows up at your house to break your thumbs. But then the most unexpected things happens. This loan shark felt an emotion Jesus called splagma, a Greek word meaning a gut-level compassion for the guy. We don't know why. Perhaps he remembered his own children, or maybe he just identified with this guy, whatever. And his bottom lip started to quiver, and a tear filled his eye. He then said the unthinkable, forget about it, you owe me nothing. No one in the room could believe it, least of all the forgiven man. For the first time in his life, he felt free. He thanked the loan officer profusely and emerged from the courtroom a new man. He rushed home, feeling light as air, to tell his family the news of their release. As he crossed the street from the courthouse, he saw an old colleague who owed him three bucks. He grabbed the man by the neck and said, "'Give me my three dollars.' The guy said, "'I'm sorry, I've had a bad week. I don't have any money. I'll pay you next week.' Know the man shrieked, if you can't pay now, you're going to prison. I imagine that when Jesus was telling this story, at this point, his hearers rolled their eyes. Give me a break. Nobody for giving them millions of dollars would throw someone in prison over three bucks. And that is Jesus' point exactly. There is no way you could have any concept of what God has forgiven you of and be ungenerous in spirit toward others. If you are, it must mean you are unaware of the grace God has shown toward you. Those people who really believe the gospel show it by becoming like the gospel. Someone saturated in the grace of the gospel develops almost insane ability to forgive. A radical forgiveness. It was my failure to grasp the grace shown to me in the gospel that almost destroyed my marriage. My wife and I had been married for eight wonderful years, plus two other ones for a total of ten. Those first two years were rough. I remember my wife and I crooning to each other a few months before we got married. We never fight. We must be perfect for each other. And we didn't fight at that point. Throughout the entire year of our dating relationship and engagement, I cannot remember a single altercation. Well, we made up for lost time during the first six months of our marriage. After grueling it out for a couple of years in desperation, we went to see a biblical counselor. He opened his Bible to 1 Timothy 1.15, where Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners. He then asked us if we thought Paul was exaggerating when he called himself that. My doctrine of the Bible made me want to say no, since the Bible is inerrant and Paul doesn't exaggerate. But how could Paul really think he was a bigger sinner than Judas Iscariot or Nero? Still completely unaware of where the counselor was going with this, I said, I don't know. He said that Paul was indeed telling the truth and saying that because in his perception, he was the biggest sinner. 
Paul was better acquainted with his own sinfulness than he was anyone else's. Of course, Paul knew, theoretically, that other people were every bit the sinner he was, but he was so much more aware of his sin than he was theirs. When Paul thought about a need for grace, he didn't think of others first, he thought of himself. Our counselor explained that both my wife and I saw one another, and not ourselves, as the chief of sinners. I could see my wife's sin, but I was blissfully oblivious to my own. If I had understood my own deep need for grace, I would have more naturally extended grace to her. The counselor's next words exploded in my heart like a bombshell. When you really believe the gospel, you see that you are first a sinner and only secondarily sinned against. The problem in your marriage is that neither of you seems aware of how much you've been forgiven. Because you haven't really tasted grace, you won't extend grace to each other. You need to go back to the gospel. Our marriage problems were gospel problems. That afternoon, my wife and I began to explore more intimately the grace that had been extended to us in Christ. Through that study, our entire disposition toward one another changed. We began to see ourselves as first, sinner, and second, sinned against. And as we became more aware of our own need for grace, we became more willing to extend it to each other. We still hurt and disappoint one another. We still get impatient. But when I think about how much God has forgiven me of, what I'm asked to forgive her of doesn't seem that substantial. As we stand amazed at what God has done for us in the cross of Christ, we find it hard to stay angry at one another. As God's grace changes us, our grace changes others. In having dealt with a number of struggling marriages in our church over the years, I have noticed that one of the biggest obstacles to showing grace to others is the belief that if you do not retaliate, those who hurt you will never learn the wrongness of what they have done. We take it upon ourselves to educate our spouses, our kids, our co-workers, our parents, and anyone else in our path as to their faults and how they've hurt us. That's what I thought during those first two years of marriage. I thought the only way really to change my wife was to make her feel the pain of what she was doing to me. If I hurt her in the same way she hurt me, she'd repent. Furthermore, I felt in paying her back for her wrong. See, when we are wrong, the little divine tuning fork in our hearts telling us that the balance of justice in the universe is off. We feel nigh unto deity when we are righting that wrong. We think when we restore the balance of justice, everyone will start behaving properly again. That is a lie. Is that how God changed us by punishing us for our sin? No, God changed us by pouring our undeserved out undeserved kindness on us. When we tasted that, our hearts were transformed. We will help others change in the exact same way. Paul explained it this way. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My favorite phrase in that verse is that by returning good for evil, we will be heaping burning coals on our enemy's head. That sounds like what I wanted to do to my enemy, (laughs) my wife, in the first place. 
But Paul isn't saying that we dump coals on someone's head to hurt them. That, after all, would be against the entire spirit of the passage. Dumping coals on their head is meant to wake them up. The person who receives your kindness in response to their sin is shocked into awareness. Your kindness to them makes them the absurdity of their selfishness and helps awaken them to the blessings of relationship. Only then, Paul says, will you overcome evil. You can't overcome evil on someone by paying them back. You'll only perpetuate it. Your retaliation will produce more anger in them and, in turn, more evil, if not toward you, toward someone else. You destroy the evil in someone by showing them extravagant grace. Jesus said it this way, when we are wronged, we should turn the other cheek. Some interpret that to mean that we engage in some type of unrealistic pacifism. Someone punches us in the face and we stand back up, look at them and say, is that all you got? I'm still standing. Here, hit me again. But in Jewish thought, the cheek was the symbol of relationship. Kissing someone's cheek was the sign of peace and fellowship. Striking someone's cheek meant that you are attacking the relationship. To have your cheek struck meant that friends were taking you for granted, not giving you respect, talking behind your back, not thinking about your needs. Jesus says, turn your other cheek to them. In other words, re-offer the relationship to them. Jesus did not say, turn the same cheek back to them, as in, let them hit you again. Nor did he say, strike them on their cheek in return, as in, retaliate so they are in pain too. He said, turn the other cheek to them. Re-offer the blessings of relationship. We might need to confront them where they wronged us, but we do so without the slightest desire to wound in return. We absorb the sting of their blow and offer them the kindness of a restored relationship, just like Jesus did for us. In confronting them, you are not trying to verbally pay them back for their offense, verbally whipping them. You are confronting them for their sake, because you are saddened by what their sin is doing to them and what it is doing to your relationship. You do this in love, more concerned with how their sin is hurting them than its effect on you. Where they were selfish and cruel, you respond with tenderness and a desire to reconcile. You absorb their violence and offer them peace. By so doing, you might very well awaken them out of their destructive behavior. The gospel does not tell us to be passive toward others in their faults. It tells us to be aggressively graceful. We overcome evil with good. Overcome is a warrior's term. Paul is saying, Go to war with evil and defeat it soundly with grace. Jesus overcame evil in us through the grace of the cross. We will overcome evil in others by being to them as Jesus was to us. Men, we are supposed to lead in this in our marriages. When Paul tells us, love our wives like Christ loves the church, this is primarily what he was talking about. Christ loved the church by receiving her hurtful blows and offering her only love in response. His grace toward the church did not find, but made the church beautiful. This produced in the church a love for him that could never have been produced through retaliation. C.S. Lewis said it well. This verse, Ephesians 5.25, is most embodied in the husband whose wife receives most and gives the least. It's the one whose wife is the most unworthy of him, is in her own mere nature least lovable. For the church has no beauty but what the bridegroom gives her. He does not find but makes 
her lovely. We make our wives beautiful by extending to them the grace of the cross. This washes them with the word and helps form in them Christ-like character. Christ did it for us first. We do it for our wives second. We respond to God, not to others. Now I hear what you might be saying, but this person does not deserve my grace. You don't know how deeply they've hurt me. As compassionately as I can, I want to tell you, that's the whole point. We didn't deserve God's grace when God saved us either. The bottom line is that the person we choose to forgive may not change when we first show them grace. We didn't either. I don't know many people who believe the gospel the first time they heard it. Jesus extended grace to me a long time before I changed. He died for me while I was still a sinner. In fact, the person you are forgiving might never change. That's okay because forgiveness has a benefit to forgive too. We get a chance to love like God loves. Even if showing grace never changes those we forgive, it changes us. And that is God's primary purpose in all that is happening to us in this life. Paul says God is working all things in our life together toward his good plan of conforming us to the image of his son. Ultimately, I'm responding to Jesus, not to the person in front of me. The person wronging me may not deserve a response of grace, but the Jesus who bled and died for me does. So you're waiting for the repairman who is two hours late. When he comes in, you want to go Old Testament on him. Perhaps in that moment of frustration, you might remember this repairman's tardiness is nothing compared to the blasphemy I committed against God. You might still confront the repairman about his tardiness, but you'll have an entirely different spirit. Note, this has happened to me a lot. I become aware that God seems to have appointed a whole army of incompetent, uncaring people for my sanctification. When you have tasted the grace of the gospel, no relationship, no matter how wrong or hurtful or annoying, looks the same to you. You'll see yourself as first sinner and second sinned against. And when that happens, your entire disposition toward others' offenses towards you will change. The clearest mark of God's grace in your life is a generous spirit toward others. You should daily think on the grace of God shown to you in Christ and pray, as you have been to me, so I will be to others.